Hello and welcome to Life Changes You. I'm Daniel. Earlier today, I spoke with Patrick Hill from Patrick Hill Coaching in the UK. So I just wanted to let you know that uh, this podcast does contain some adult language. So sit back and enjoy this wonderful podcast I had with Patrick. Hello and welcome to Life Changes You. Today I've got a special guest, Patrick Hill from Patrick Hill Coaching. He's based in the UK. I don't actually know. Are you in? No, you're not Bournemouth, are you? You're London. Are you London? I'm in, I'm in London, South London. Yeah. So that's Patrick. As you, as you, can, you can tell from my accent. Yes. New Zealander? Don't be so offensive. Oh. Yes. Yes. Oh, good. Yes. Anyway, so what I wanted to do is uh, let's start by <laughs> asking you a little bit about your life. What, what were your inspirations as a child? Who inspired you? Oh, that's awful. What a question. Who inspires me? I tell you what, I don't know that this is inspiration, but I remember seeing Back to the Future with Michael J. Fox. And I don't know that I was inspired by him. I just wanted to be him. Wow. Because that film was just so classically brilliant at the time. I was like, oh, yeah, I'd like to get out of here. Let's go back to the future. Yeah. See, I never watched any of the Back to the Future films. I remember him from Family Ties with Mallory and the little girl. I can't remember her name. Daniel, I'm judging you. You've got to watch that film today, tonight. Yeah. Oh, maybe I should go Back to the Future. Yeah, but in terms of inspiration, I don't know. There's this thing that people, people often talk about who inspires you, and my thing is that I want to be the person who inspires me. Right. Because I think quite a lot of my life I was looking externally for this inspiration or this leader and actually, I came to see that most of them were assholes. Right. And so actually what I try and do now is I try and be the leader and the inspiration that I sought when I was a kid because you know, there wasn't, you know, small town New Zealand, there wasn't really a whole lot going on. Yeah, and look, that's actually a good way to be. I mean, I, I know a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, I know a few people who look for mentors and stuff like that to help them. Mm. And I think through my life I've actually learnt to explore those ideas myself and rely on myself to come up with ways of generating money, ways of generating mm-hmm. what's going on in my life. Um, I, I sort of also think it's a little bit like God, not that I'm a believer or not a believer. I don't know what I am. But when you see people who are like, oh, God will help me, I think, well, no, if you go out there and do it yourself, you'll help yourself and then you'll believe in yourself and have that self-esteem. I think you've got to start internally. And whenever anyone in- mentions the word God to me, I-, I just roll my eyes and go, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really, it doesn't inspire me because I'm just so cynical. It's like, yeah, it's written in a book, so what? I mean, does that mean it's true? Did he really live? I mean, crosses and caves and tombs and whatever. But the thing for me is, you know, in terms of leadership and inspiration, you know, people are obsessed with leaders and followers. Like, well, my question to anyone is, do you actually want to follow yourself? Yeah. If you want to follow yourself, really genuinely loving what you're doing and and liking who you are, you don't need to worry about all that outside stuff. And most of the work I do with clients is actually getting them to a place where they can look inwards safely and start to build and rebuild a relationship with themselves that is not dependent on the external to top them, themselves up because I think that's what yeah. lots of people are trying to do. It just doesn't work. 
No, definitely not. And, and look, I mean, really, if we were to look for inspirational leaders at the moment, I don't think there's many around the world. Oh, uh, your, well, from your old hometown, New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, Atan. She is doing Daniel, some amazing if stuff. If you can't say her name properly, <laughs> can you just not talk? Is that okay? I mean, I'll do the interview myself. I mean, I'm quite good at asking questions and I'm happy to interview myself. You can just sit inside us and watch me. Get her goddamn name right. It's called Jacinda Ardern. Got it? Jacinda Say it again. Jacinda Ardern. Ardern? Ardern. And the first name? Jacinda. And now both of them? Jacinda Ardern. Okay, yeah, it's all right. Just keep practicing that. Do you want me to spell it for you? No. <laughs> she is an exceptional leader. She's she exceptional. And when I got back to London, I was in New Zealand uh, till June 2020. I was in New Zealand helping my mum die. I got back, I left New Zealand when New Zealand came out of lockdown, came back to London to this shitstorm, chaotic, stupid, poor communication of fat, white, middle class, horrible looking idiots who couldn't communicate. Oh, I was so furious with the motherfuckers. Is this a swearing podcast? You can swear. Yeah, well, they're fucking shits and they <laughs> fucked it up. They had one chance and they got it wrong and they're still getting it wrong. And um, I just decided when I got back here, so no, screw this. I've just been through eight months of looking after mum and then you're telling me you can't organise this? No, forget it. So I just decided I don't fucking care about the pandemic. I'm going to do what I need to do to look after my health because I'm not looking to these, again, external leaders that are not leaders. If you're putting the votes and economy ahead of lives, you have nothing I want and I'm not going to do what you say. Yeah. And if that means I, I break the law and get fined, fine, I will, but then I will tell them exactly why I'm doing it and I'll make it public. Yeah. I mean, look, in Australia, we were well, we were sort of lucky in Victoria because we had the lockdown, then we came out yeah. of it for two and a half weeks and then we went back into lockdown again, which I think yeah. was about eight weeks. Um, yeah. I was lucky enough that with my job I could still work. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it did the trick. We were at 700 people a day at that stage and they got it down yeah. to maybe one or two. Um, yeah. But in England, it seemed to be that it was like, oh, well, people want to meet up over Christmas, so we're only going to shut what this much down. What the fuck was that about? I know. I mean, you're looking at all these lives that you're putting at risk and yet you're saying, oh, yes, you can have Christmas together. Yeah, it's, and that's just that's a small part of the chaos. I think the thing that worries me even more, so my partner went back to Brazil to see his family uh, beginning of January. And so obviously we, we hear in great detail what's happening in the Western world with majority white English-speaking countries, but you do not have any idea what's going on in the developing the third world. And it is so bad. It is so bad in Brazil. So obviously he got to Brazil and then the UK closed the border here to yeah. any flights from Brazil, so he got stuck. So he's going through Mexico at the moment trying to get home, so hopefully he'll be home next week. Anyway, what's going on in Brazil is so – it's like – Random genocide, actually, is what right. it is. And with that crazy president, it's just, it's horrific. And this, this pandemic is not going to end because of terrible leaders like him. Yeah. It's just, it's, anyway, don't get me on my soapbox, although it's a bit late. <laughs> well, you're, you're on your roadmap out of it now, aren't you? I think by July you're supposed to be out of it, which is still quite a way away. Well, look, 
but given how chaotic it's been, I'm not too hopeful, which is why I'm just going about living my life as I want to anyway. I'm not going to wait around for this pandemic to finish or the leaders to sort their shit out. I was so angry at one point. And I think anger is one of these things in the UK where it's almost apathetic. It's like, oh, here we go again. This place is so chaotic. Let's just roll with it and not get angry. Well, I was furious, which yeah. is why I started doing my lives on Instagram because yeah. I was feeling the isolation. I've had periods in my life where I've been so anxious I couldn't leave the house. Thank God that's a long time ago. So I thought, no, 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 I'm not waiting for these leaders to do something supportive and help. So I started doing these lives uh, Monday to Friday, 9.30 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time called Positive with Patrick on my coaching couch. And I just yeah. get people who I know on to come and have a chat. Yeah. Um, and actually, I'd love, I'd love you to come on sometime if you're interested, Daniel. But the reason I did it is I knew people were struggling and I was like, I can do this for free. It's not going to cost anything and it's going to make an impact. And I, I still get messages from people each week. I get three or four messages from people who have been watching every episode yeah, yeah, yeah. saying, thank you for doing this. Look, I mean, I've only caught probably three or four, but the ones I've caught, you know, I mean, I'm trained as a counsellor, you're a coach, but mm. there's always something new to learn. You, you had a guy, I think he was a fitness guy the other I can't even remember. Yeah, was it last Nick. week? Nick. Yeah. And, yeah, and the conversation you guys were having was really interesting. And it made me rethink some of the things that I've learned or I've been thinking, oh, that's a good way to go. Then I went, oh, actually, no, now I'm listening to this. This actually sounds like a better way. So, I mean, your chats on Instagram are really good for therapists, counsellors, psychologists to listen to because seeing the dynamic between you and listening to what you're talking about, I think it was about boundaries and about uh, uh, males uh, – uh, with therapy and how to break down that stigma of, you know, men mm -hmm. shouldn't cry and, you know, open mm -hmm. up and be yeah. not necessarily, it's not, you weren't talking about, oh, you have to be gay. It was like, but you just have to be accepting of people and you have to yeah, open up. and Absolutely. And and the big push that I'm having, I'm doing a, a group coaching, uh, a men, male only group coaching workshop in April on the 13th called Strong Men Cry. Yep. And the whole premise behind it is the international suicide crisis is fucking ridiculous. Oh, it is. And it's people crazy. keep saying we, we should do this or something has. It's like, well, what are you going to do today is my question. Yeah. What will you do today as an individual or a collective to make an impact, to make a difference? Yeah. Because nothing's changing. The stats are rising. Yep. Um, and, and with the suicide stats being 75% of all suicides are male, 25%. Female, some of the research I've, I've read recently is that's actually not accurate. It's more like 80% 20. And yeah. so with that ratio of perhaps, you know, four suicides, four, four male suicides to one female, well, who's going to take leadership? So I decided, no, I'm doing this. Yeah. So the, the bigger vision for my work is to dramatically reduce the suicide stats as much as I can with the capacity I have. I've actually, I spoke to my mayor in New Zealand a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> And he's only one removed from Jacinda Ardern. Oh, good. And so I, I – what's her name? Jacinda Ardern. Yes, I asked him if he could uh, be in <laughs> – I asked him if he could message her because I would need to work with people who've got reach. Yeah. And I'm a, I'm a Kiwi abroad taking some initiative and she'd love it, but obviously she's, she's a little bit busy. I yep. mean, I, I don't quite know what she's up to given she hasn't returned my calls and stuff, but <laughs> – the whole point is you've got to make a point. You, you've got to t leadership is not a position you hold. Yep. Leadership is a decision you make yeah, for the better of all. Yep. That's what it is. And I'm not going to be one of these bastards sitting around going, oh, yeah, that's not good enough, and that they should do it. It's like, well, what the hell are you doing today?
what are you doing? Yeah. And that's the point because we've all got this, actually we're all very powerful people, but we sit back letting these idiots take charge and putting people's lives at risk. And, and there was this, the stat, Daniel, I heard here, for every suicide that happens in the UK, it costs the economy 1.3 million pounds. Right. And lost taxes and all the other stuff that an individual contributes over the course of their life on average. And I just thought to myself, well, imagine, imagine if the government proactively budgeted for, say, just one year, they took all the suicides in the UK, multiplied that by 1.3 million pounds and invested that in proactive preventative measures. Yeah. Are they doing this? No, they are not. Why not? Because they don't care is the essential final answer to that. They'll say they care, but care in words is not the same as care in action. And it's also the people around that suicide, like family members. You know, if there's no note oh. and they suicide, then the, the yeah. parents, brothers, sisters are continuously thinking, why? Why, why couldn't I help? Yeah. Why did they do yeah. it? What was so wrong? You know, so yeah. it doesn't just affect the person who's gone. It affects three, Absolutely. four, five people around them and it friends. Affects, it affects it affects dozens of people. Yeah. A close friend of mine's son killed himself in October. He was 21. And I've been talking with her and working with her prior to this. And she said to me at some point, only about three weeks before, she said, I think he could die from this addiction. And I said, and that's actually really highly likely. I've yeah. been sober for nearly 22 years and I've worked with hundreds of addicts and alcoholics. And I hated saying the truth to her, but I thought I'm not going to pretend. Anyway, he did. He, he killed himself in October. And I had never met the young man. I'd never met him. But yeah. the impact it had on me yeah. was huge Yeah. just because I love my friend and I wanted to hold her as safely as I could as she tried to come to terms with this horrific reality. Yeah. But the thing, the thing that I've observed and I know for a fact now based on what I've seen, and I, I was a suicide stat that should have been successful Eight years ago, Daniel, I was looking at a tree in my back garden, the worst period of uh, anxiety and depression I'd ever had in my life. The culmination of all sorts of things came up together at that point in time. And um, I was looking at this tree in my back garden thinking, I think that tree will take my weight. Yeah. And then this next voice goes, and you know there's a full bottle of vodka under the stairs. And then this other little voice goes, Actually, I think you're really tired. Why don't you go to bed? So I did. But then what I did the next day, and this is the thing that I know for a fact, is the number one thing that helps people stay well, is I picked up the phone to a close friend who knows everything about my colourful backstory, as I call it, and I said to him, I'm calling you to tell you this because I don't want to. Yeah. And I told him what was going on in my head the night before, and he came and saw me that day, and he said, we need to get you to your GP today. Yeah. And connection is the number one thing that helps people stay well. Yeah. Connection because isolation is the number one thing that makes people get really unwell when it comes to their health, mental health. We know from the research that longevity alone is determined by the quality of the connections and high quality relationships you, that you have. Yeah. So when I'm thinking about suicide and working with people or mental health stuff or coaching, my whole thing is, okay, so who are you spending your time with? Who are you really connecting to in a really meaningful, safe way? Yeah. And what I'm really, really proud of is all of my 46 years of my backstory, I'm now able to bring all of it to you, 
or whoever I'm working with, yeah. with no fear or shame of any part of my story. I fully own it. It's on my website. It's been in the newspapers because all of it is now my greatest uh, tool and vehicle to help you. Yeah. And so stepping fully into my vulnerability and being vulnerably strong and saying, yeah, this happened to me, this happened to me, all that, that actually empowers you or whoever to come forward, yeah. to, step, to step up. And here's the little example that was published in the New Zealand media. I was abused at my all-boys Catholic secondary school by the school guidance counsellor when I was 15 and 16. And when I was 38, when I was looking at a tree in my back garden, that was when the denial finally broke. Yeah. And it crushed me. And I reverted straight back to that 15-year-old kid, terrified. But this time I wasn't drinking or dragging to try and escape it. I had no, there was nothing to yeah. take the edge off that. And I called the New Zealand police from London uh, to Lower Hutt where I was uh, abused and reported the historic crime 23 years later. Now that is common. Males we know report historic abuse decades later, females yeah. slightly earlier on average. And when I called the police, I was not doing it for any reason other than I wasn't trying to get a conviction or anything. I was doing it to speak up and fully own all of me Yeah. because I felt I needed to make some, I had to give voice to the little kid that didn't. Yeah. And all of a sudden I was 38 and I thought, no, no, I'm a resilient little motherfucker. I'm going to do this because I can and I need to for me. Yeah. Anyway, I knew of two other guys that were abused by the same, the same man. And my little world crumbled and unraveled in the space of about eight months after that. And I got really, really unwell with anxiety and depression. And the fucking, the pedophile was obviously approached by the police. Um, and he tried to get in touch with me. Oh. And that just spiraled things for me. It really just terrified me. Yeah. Anyway, skip, skip forward. I got through that really rough period. And then in 2015, Yes, I reported it in 2012. 2015, he was finally convicted. Now, I didn't do it for a conviction. I did it to free me. But I knew that in doing that, I would also free others. Skip forward to 2018, it hits the media again because another guy's come forward, but his evidence wasn't able to be used for some sort of legal technicality. So I, because, you know, the world's so small now, you can get hold of anyone. I spoke to that same guy. His name was Steve Goodless. He, he was in the paper. And I got hold of him within 12 hours of seeing this article in the paper. And I spoke to him. And we then set up a support network through Facebook for males who were at our secondary school during that period of time while the abuser was there. In the space of two weeks after being in touch with Steve in 2018 or 19, 12 other guys had come forward. Fuck. Now, we never, ever know the power we hold if we live in fear. Yeah. We we only ever reach our capacity and potential when we fully own all of ourselves with no fear, no shame. And when I took that really brave and bold move in 2012, I wasn't doing it for any reason other than I had to be true to me and try and help heal this little kid who'd been fucked up. Yeah. So, again, that links to the vulnerability, but also the connection. I forced myself to connect. I forced myself to be really brave so that I could live fully and freely. Skip forward eight years. I'm 46 now. A lot of people are coming to me because they know how safe they're going to be. Yep. 
Because, Daniel, you could tell me anything. You could literally tell me anything. And it's not that I wouldn't care. All I know is I can say, I'll be with you beside you all the way. Yeah. No fear, nothing at all other than unconditional love. You know, and in the therapeutic and counselling world, they use Carl Rogers' unconditional positive regard phrase. I think that's, you know, I think that's what's that. That's like academic language for love, unconditional love. Yeah. Because if you can't hold someone in the space that's required in counselling or therapy or coaching, if you can't fully hold them, you should not be in that profession. Yeah. And safety that's required in order for people to grow and heal, it's got to be 100% safe because you can't have 98% safe. No. You can't have 95% unconditional love. So that's basically why, why I'm doing what I'm doing. And interestingly, I don't, I don't go around promoting what I'm doing much at all. I, I'm a bit on Instagram and LinkedIn, but actually what's happening is people are just talking yeah. and people are finding me. Yeah. And it's, a real, it's an absolute bloody honour and privilege. And again, last week someone approached me. They shared their story, 49, never spoken to anyone about anything to do with his historic abuse. Yeah. Now, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a counsellor. But I love that I can do the work that I do knowing that how I work with people heals them. And it's not because of training. It's because I know how to love people. Yeah, it's amazing. What you've just spoken about is just brilliant. And, I mean, look, I'm, I'm sort of a bit lost for words because you've just been so brutally honest and talked about what's happened to you yeah. and it's phenomenal that you can just yeah. speak about it so openly oh but a lot of work a lot oh, of definitely. work i had six years of therapy from when i was 38 till i was 44 yeah so that's about right I finished about two years ago but when you when you you know again it comes back to that connection thing i i'm such a resilient guy you know, when I was nine, I was bullied terribly for being gay by a group of boys in my school. And then my fucking primary school teacher joined in and started calling me Nancy for the rest of the year. Uh, right? Yeah. I was in a I was a, as a nine-year-old kid sitting in a big, huge field of grass like you have in Australia and New Zealand where you've got space. And I was sobbing. The bell had gone. I was sobbing in the middle of this field going, I can't face another day of this. And I was like, I know what to do. I can kill myself and it'll be over. Yeah. That's how I started off life. Yeah. You just think of a nine-year-old kid killing themselves. Oh, it's awful. You know, and because I got through that and then, you know, obviously things actually got harder for me, didn't they? But I now know I've almost got this list. I actually do have a list on my phone. It's called a, it's called a th thrival list. Instead of survival, it's called a thrival list. And these are the things that I do when life gets tough. And it's a very simple little formula of actions to take to stay really, really well because I've had some storms. Oh, my God. And you know when people say, you know, what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? I'm like, fuck off. I'm strong enough. <laughs> Don't you give me that bullshit. And then they say stupid-ass things like everything happens for a reason. I was like, okay, you say that to my friend whose son killed himself then. Yeah. What utter bullshit. Yeah. No, not everything happens for a reason. Sometimes life is just Fucking awful. Definitely. But you yeah. can get through it. Yeah. And the key is don't even think about trying to get through it on your own. I mean, you think I, you're going to get, you're going to live well on your own? Fucking go and live in a cave. 
like you're just saying there, you know, it's when people say to you, oh, God takes them because he wants the good ones when they're young or whatever the, the saying is, and you just think... What a load of shit. If God was there, what? wouldn't could he want them to stay anything there? More, could you say anything more insensitive and hurtful to someone who's just lost their child? Yeah. Like my mum died last year from motor neurone disease. She was 74, five children, 18 grandchildren. She had lived. She died happily and peacefully. That's fine. That's natural causes. A 21-year-old kid killing himself because yeah. of his mental health problems and his addiction no, do not give me your stupid, thoughtless fucking statements. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's right. It's so right, isn't it? I mean, pe- look, uh, do people actually think that they're being sensitive or being caring do, do by you know saying that? The, look, Daniel, this is the <laughs> honest truth. They don't think. What they're doing is they're spouting shit that they were told (laughs) by someone else with no cognitive processing whatsoever. (laughs) You you think of all the fucking cliches you hear around death. It's like, oh, they've gone to a better place. It's like, where is this fucking place then? I want to go. If it's that fucking good, show me. Gone to a better place, my ass. The better place is here next to me, you fucker. Don't say stupid shit. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> so if you want coaching with me, this is basically what you get. <laughs> so tell me a bit about your coaching then. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so as you can tell, what you see is what you get. <sighs> I, I say to people, if you want some really, really good shallow coaching on time management, please don't approach me. <laughs> I don't care about your time management <laughs> because the, the bigger issue is, and this is the thing that I've seen time and time again, you know, people have approached me for things like time management or imposter syndrome or, I don't know, confidence. But actually what they're really needing and wanting is they need to rebuild and recreate a healthier relationship with themselves. Yeah. That's what, that's what the fundamental thing comes back to all the time. Yeah. And whether you're a coach or a therapist or a counsellor, you know, and, and in corporate client work, you know, you, there's always a public and a private interest. But when the sponsors in the three-way meeting that we have to begin with, I say to them, you do need to be aware that most of the movement will happen internally for the, this client and that's the benefit that you gain as a company. Yeah, yeah. Because when we are stepping fully into ourselves and learning about ourselves and understanding ourselves in lots of new different ways, that's what creates the transformation in the movement because people's peak performance is about having a peak relationship with themselves. It's not about fucking ticking boxes for the corporates. It's about actually really knowing yourself, knowing what you are all about, what your values are, how you relate to people, how you don't relate to people. Getting a really clear understanding of yourself is where you transform and your life takes off at that point. So when I saw your, uh, you know, the three words in your circle, uh, what was it? Transforms one of them. I can't Uh, remember. Explore, transform, become. Right. Explore, transform, become. When I saw those three words, I was like, oh, yeah, no, Daniel gets my time. Because that's the stuff that matters. Yeah. That's the stuff that changes everything. You just think about your relationship with one of your children or a family member. If you can, if you can do those three things with anyone in your life, 
oh, the quality and the richness of how you're going to live with them and with yourself. That's what matters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when mum died um, because of lockdown in New Zealand, only dad and I were in the hospital with mum when she took her last breath and it was just the most beautiful moment. I mean, God, so not Hollywood with music and bullshit. It was just this gentle, peaceful easing away. It yeah. was amazing. Now, when you help someone die and uh, you go through that, it should change you. And it absolutely did for me. And what I got really clear about is, I mean, I've always been quite philosophical and, you know, critically reflective on things in life. I've always asked way too many questions, which people don't like, but I love it because what, what else matters really other than reflecting and, and thinking. But um, I got very clear about what mattered to me. And I was a teacher for 20 years. I taught primary school kids here in London, 11-year-olds, uh, and I loved it. But after mum died, and mum said to me four years ago, and I kind of knew what she meant, but she said to me four years ago, she said, she said, no, Pat, you're too big for schools. And then when she died, it was very clear to me that I was never going to sit foot in a classroom and teach kids again. Yeah. And, and it didn't bother me at all. I was slightly fearful and anxious, but more than ever, I was just grief-stricken because not only had mum died, the trauma of looking for someone, looking after someone who's dying is pretty full on. It took me five months to kind of come out of that when I got back to London. But, um, yeah, so I just stepped fully into, okay, let's just focus on my coaching work. And I've been coaching for four years anyway, in-house coaching at school and then private clients. And I was like, nah, this is very clear about what I'm supposed to be doing. And um, one of the reasons I'm able to do what I do and do it so well is because the last thing I did with mum was look after her. Yep and be with her beside her. And I was like, oh, no, if I could be beside someone as they're dying all the way to the end, it's like, yeah, I can do anything. And, and look, you're right. My sister died. Um, I can't even remember how old I was now. I think it was about, oh, well, it was 16 years ago. And I looked after her in her last five, six days. She had uh, breast mm. cancer. And yeah. it was quite horrific going through it. Mm. And to try mm. and stay on top of it, not get too upset so that you could focus on what you needed to do. Mm. And it taught me so much about myself, about my sister, yeah. about life. I had a friend two years later whose mum was really ill with cancer and I went in the mm -hmm. hospital to see her and she said, I just don't know how I can carry on. And I said, you don't have to. This is about you. Mm. It's what you mm. need to do. And she's like, but they might yeah. not cope without me. And I go, fuck them. <laughs> this is you. If you don't want to go on anymore, just give up. You can. Yeah. And yeah. later that night, I got a call from my mate going, what did you say to my mum? You know, she was all upset. And I said, I just gave her permission to go. And he goes, but I don't want mm. her to go. And I go, I know you don't, but she can't mm. fight anymore. She's tired. Mm. Mm. And, and so, you know, looking after my sister, I think mm. prepared me to speak to this lady and say, look, you don't have yeah. to fight. And yeah. so it's, it's, I think, you know, things happen in your life and I'm not one of those people that all oh, the universe has taught me this. But when I was 19, I went back to England, visited my family and my uncle was dying of cancer. And I think mm -hmm. seeing him die and the way he was prepared me to look after my sister. Helping mm -hmm. her prepared me to help with my friend's mum. You know, so yeah. all these little things and they... They don't necessarily make you stronger because you still feel, I mean, when his mum died, I burst into tears at the funeral and it was like, well, why am I so upset? But that's my release. I had to let it out because everything else that's gone on. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, though, Daniel, when, when you get to beautifully express emotion like that with those tears, it's 
just because you've got a lot of love. And I heard this great line recently, or maybe I read it somewhere, so grief, grief is in direct proportion to the love that we held for these people. And I love that because it's like, oh, that's one of the, the beautiful gifts. And one of the things that I was able to do when I was looking after mum is I was able to flip it into an opportunity rather than, don't get me wrong, it was sad. It was tough going at times. I yeah. cried an enormous amount on my own. Um, but I focused on the gratitude of, oh, my God, I had six and a half. And for mum's life, I had six and a half months extra with mum in the last days of her life. Yeah. And so I just stopped London, resigned from my job, left my partner. He was like, go do what you need to do. And obviously we didn't know how long it was going to be. But oh, I'd do it all again. Yeah. And I'd do it all again. The day mum died, I said to dad, I'd do this for you, mate. Yeah. I'd do this for you. And, you know, and now, <laughs> of course, life, you know, tends to throw you curveballs. Uh, we found out in February my father's terminally ill with brain cancer. Right. And I said he can't talk to him anymore because he, he, his vocal cords are gone and he's getting confused and I won't see him again. Uh, well, we said, I said to him before I left New Zealand, we may not see each other in person again. He goes, no, I don't think we will. And we didn't know he was sick then. But um, I emailed him when he, he emailed through the, the diagnosis from the doctors and, that, and I said, isn't it amazing that the last eight months we were together, six and a half months of that was caring for mum and yeah. looking after her and helping her live well as she died. And I am so grateful that our last eight months together in person, together, we did probably the most significant thing we're ever going to do in our lives. And my father was an asshole to me when I was a kid. <laughs> Absolute fucking asshole. He was such a bully, autistic, dry, drunk, erratic freak. And over the 25, over the 25 years after I came out, we rebuilt that relationship because I just demanded, I demand from anybody, I demand respect. And yeah. if you're not going to respect me, fuck off. Yeah. Because I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to extend mutual mutual respect to you and equality. But if you can't reciprocate that, you have no place in my life. And so dad and I ended our time together in New Zealand when I left in June 2020, having just cared for mom and our relationship was as good it was, as it was ever going to get. Don't get me wrong. He can still piss me off if he, as he's dying. He's now using his, his terminal diagnosis as a reason to not take responsibility for shit behaviour. I said, oh, are you doing your, in an email, are you doing your selective taking responsibility or not because you're dying? So I don't care that you're dying. Stop being an asshole. You can't, you can't use death as an excuse for being an asshole. Because then I can use my life as an excuse for being an asshole. You can't have it both ways, mate. <laughs> but anyway, I fucking love him, but jeez, he pisses me off. <laughs> Would I want a different father? No, not one bit. But hell, yeah, we, we, we have a good time on the whole, but bloody hell. I'm so pleased I got mum's shift. My younger brother's doing dad. I'm like, yeah, good yeah. luck. <laughs> Well, look, I mean, you were lucky with your mum that you, you could go back and you were allowed yeah. two people in the hospital because my father, dad, passed away, I think, four weeks ago now. I can't remember. It's a bit of a blur. Yeah. But sorry, it was man. at the time when we had five days of lockdown in, for COVID in Victoria. Before that, we didn't. Right. And those five days were when he was in hospital and he passed away. And you... Right. For a little bit there, I sort of carried the guilt of, did he just don't think that we didn't care? 
because maybe he didn't understand we weren't allowed in. He hated hospitals. The last time he was in one eight years ago, he pleaded with me to take him home. And I said, mate, you're going to be home in two days. They just need to fix what, I think he had an embolism on his lung, something like that. Um, But this time we couldn't even talk to him because they thought he might have had some sort of um, infection on his brain. So he would talk Mm. normally, but then he would sort of mix up a few things. So we were just hoping, and they said to us, look, after the next 24 hours, he's going to turn around and then you'll be able to come in. Of course, he died that night and we didn't get to say goodbye or anything. However, in my head, I know that he's in a better place. And look, I don't know if you believe in coincidence, but my sister was called Debbie. And when we entered Mm. the hospital, because we were allowed in after he's dead, when we were allowed in, the charge nurse comes up to me and says, hi, I'm Debbie. And immediately I just felt like, whoa, Debbie's come here to take him Mm. with her. You know, uh, and it can be coincidence. Are, yeah, no, you're going to experience that for the rest of your life. Yeah, but it was sort of the, like a nice feeling, like, well, oh, at least there's someone there. Listen, I'll, I'll 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 finish on this. I need to go on a couple of minutes. Yeah, when, that's great. Uh, we got we got back home from the hospital the day Mum died, and Mum was born in Sydney, and I spent a lot of my childhood in Sydney, and Dad was a Kiwi, but um, we got back home from the hospital and we were relieved really because actually mum died really, really quickly at the end. She was laughing up until the day before and actually what killed her was bowel cancer. Oh. Her, bowel shut, her bowel shut down. No one knew she had bowel cancer. Her bowel shut down, poisoned her body and she was gone within 19 hours of that starting. So it was a release and a relief. I've never said before, gee, I'm grateful for cancer because we, we were spared and mum was spared at least another year of deterioration yeah. really. But we got back from the hospital and uh, that evening, Dad and I were just talking, and I said, "What should we, what should we put on Mum's coffin?" He goes, "I think we've got a New Zealand flag somewhere." I was like, "No, it's not a New Zealand flag; it's an Australian flag." I said, "And I know exactly where it is." Happen you head. I had not lived in that house for eighteen years, but I knew where it would be. So I go upstairs, open this drawer, and there's this Australian flag. It's the only thing in this goddamn drawer. Yeah. Right. I don't know how I knew it was there. I mean, I must have seen it there years and years ago. And I got the flag and I took it downstairs to kind of the entranceway of the house. And I held out this flag and said, Dad, look. And Dad was right there with me. And at that moment, both Dad and I had this physical sensation of, like, warmth rush up our bodies and this tingling all over us. Yeah. I said, Dad, can you feel that? He goes, yes. I said, this is Mum. This is Mum. Mum's yeah. here. And as I'm talking about it, I can feel it again now. This is freaky. And we, Dad and I just came together and held each other with a flag around us, oh. and we were experiencing this fucking tingling warmth rushing up and down our bodies, right? It's, God, it's still happening now. And we put that Australian flag on Mum's coffin and then one of her beautiful handmade quilts on top of it. Yep. And mum's spirit and presence was very much with us in their house for the next two or three weeks. And then she left. Yeah. And she's, I, I swear, I now know she's back in Australia. Look, a couple of other things happened like that over the next couple of days after Dad passed. I play this word for friends with my mum because yeah, yeah, she's yeah. at home and we'd play not not every day, but here and there we'd put a word in 
And I went to do the next word and the first three letters on my Scrabble board were Reg, his name. And I, I photo, photographed it and sent it to mum and said, look at this, it says Reg. Yeah. And we were like, wow, yeah. you know. So, But, you know, coincidence or whatever, they really, they help but you accept. The, right, they do. And one of the things that we now know from all the grief research and writing and, and thinking around it is when people die, the relationship doesn't end. It just changes form. Yeah. And what we get to do is make meaning and create a different relationship with them. I'll finish on this. Viewers won't be able to see this, but what I'm holding up to you to see on the camera is a ring that I had made. I had this ring made yep. uh, about three weeks after mum died because I found a broken gold bracelet of hers right. in her little sewing thing next to the chair she was in. And um, the gold was melted down and that's on the inside of the ring. Oh, yep, yep. And then mum's name's uh, yep. Yvonne's... Uh, inscribed on the inside of it and I had this ring made because it's like a touchstone and touchstones to those who've died are so important because it's another way of continuing the relationship and then I had the silver built up around it and I wanted it to look like it was in a state of deterioration because everything including you and me this podcast everything we can see and touch and feel is deteriorating right now yeah and knowing that everything's in a state of deterioration always actually helps me anyway helps me accept that this is a temporary thing but it's bloody beautiful yeah. and you know and having having this time with you now chatting has just been a highlight of my day so far and it's only begun you know yeah so i'm just delighted delighted to have met you and thank you so much for oh, inviting me it was brilliant there. look i mean for you to be so open and brutally honest and the way you chat and convey is easy for people to listen, empathise and understand. You know, some mm. people come on and they talk as if they're re well, sometimes we are reading off a script, but, you know, there's no yeah. real, there's no passion in what they're talking about and, and you've given me everything I wanted in an interview. Yeah. Uh, look, it's a really kind thing to say. I, I try to, I try to make sure I'm not boring because, you know, with people, <laughs> you could people, never be boring. <laughs> uh, Daniel, if anyone ever called me boring, I, I would be so affronted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I'm very good at is I'm very good at spotting boring people because that's actually, you know, people when you go to hospital, they say you're allergic to anything. I say yes, boring people. <laughs> that's all. All right, well, look, we're going to let you go because you've got other things you need yeah. to do. Yeah. Hey, look, I'll be in touch with you and I'll get you on the coaching couch with me. We'll do this again. That'll be brilliant. Thank you so much. It was great to you see you. Care, great to speak to you. Bye-bye. Right, Bye. Bye. Well, look, that was a fantastic chat with Patrick Hill Coaching. He's in the UK. But what a really brutally honest, really great conversation. Um, but he did bring up some things that might affect some people. So if you have felt affected and you're in Australia, uh, you can call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. Um, but it was really great speaking with Patrick. So thank him again. Well, that was another episode of Life Changes You. If you want to contact us, we're available on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And we also have a website, lifechangesyou.com.au. So until next time, take care of each other and thanks for listening.